What I would like to talk about this evening is insight. We use the word insight a great deal. We talk about its importance. It is often what brings us to meditation. We talk about how necessary insight is. And yet it's kind of a vague word. We're often not always clear, firstly, about what kind of insights we should be having, how we're going to get them, how we're going to know we're having an insight. Is there a kind of a little register that goes off that says, yes, an insight has arrived? How do we know if an insight is authentic, if it is meaningful, if it has some transforming power? I think when we come to meditation, we come with expectations. Many of those expectations are valid. I know we hear again and again, have no expectations. And yet, isn't it true that expectation can be a powerful, inspiring force in our lives? And some of the expectations we have in meditation or of meditation are very important for us to have. They are not something to kind of sideline or hide away or pretend that we don't have them. We might have expectations of moving from confusion to clarity, expectations of moving from disconnection to harmony, expectations of moving from chaos to peace, expectations of moving from ignorance to understanding. We do not come here to stay the same. And it does seem very clear that in terms of making changes, insight is an important key. And most of us, I'm sure all of us, have had enough experience in our lives and enough disillusionment in our lives to know very clearly that making outer changes alone, although they may be very necessary and very important, that making outer change alone is not enough to bring about the freedom and the peace and the sense of meaning that is important to us, that we seek for in meditation. And it becomes clear that somehow making changes is made possible by inner transformation. That making changes is made possible through inner confidence and trust in our own wisdom. That making changes is made possible through our own inner empowerment, trusting that we can make changes that it is possible for us. And it seems that in order for all of that to come about, the trust, the confidence, the empowerment, the transformation, that it is necessary for us to deepen in insight. 
And I think at times when we see what a central role insight seems to play in meditation, it is somewhat easy to regard it as a kind of magical factor. You know, that if I just have the right insight, then I'll have the right change. Or if I just have the right breakthrough or the right realization, then the change I want will follow in the footsteps of that like a shadow. And I think this is important for us to look at to some extent. Is insight enough? What kind of insight is needed? What can we expect of insight? The practice we're doing here is called Vipassana meditation, the practice of insight. Now, we don't actually practice insight, but we do something in our meditation which directs us towards cultivating insight. And the insight which is really emphasized in this practice is in several different areas. One area of insight which it is important to develop is the area of personal insight. What moves you? What makes you see the way that you do? What makes you hold on to things that you might hold on to? What allows you to let go? What are the forces, the patterns, the stories, the conditioning that limits? What are the changes that makes opening possible? Why do we fear one thing and not another? Why do we seek for one thing and not another? This whole area of personal insight is a part of this process, learning to understand who we are, who we think we are, and who it is possible for us to be. Learning to understand what it is that makes us who we are. An individual, a person, an entity. A lot of that personal insight is about content, our stories, our past, our present, the content of all of that. The other, another area of insight is not so much about content or about our personal world. Another area of insight which is truly significant is more in the form of process. This is not particular to any one of us is not confined to any one of our experience, but to understanding the nature of existence. And in a way, this understanding of process really kind of removes the barriers between I and you, between one person and another. Understanding the nature of impermanence, it is as part of my life as it is a part of your life. What does that mean for us, impermanence? to really understand that, what does it mean? Understanding the nature of suffering and its cause, sorrow and its cause, 
this knows no kind of territory. What creates sorrow in me will also create sorrow in the life of another person. What leads to suffering in one person's life will lead to the same suffering elsewhere. There is a process involved in that that is not personal. It is somewhat universal. Just as the law of change and the law of impermanence is universal. Understanding the emptiness of self. This is not a personal insight. It is not to do with just understanding the emptiness of my I. It is understanding the emptiness of self in all things. And again, this is such a way of breaking down all notions of separation, all notions of division. It's not a negative concept that I'm getting rid of self somehow. But it is seeing that underlying all of those illusions of I and you, of us and other, of one object separate from another object, that underlying all of those illusions and those appearances, there is perhaps a common, a shared element. There is perhaps an underlying oneness, a truth. That kind of understanding, that more universal principle, is an important, per- important part of developing this path. The purpose of insight, whether it is a personal insight, whether it is insight into the nature of existence, the purpose of insight is simple. The purpose of insight is transformation, inwardly and outwardly. Its purpose is to free us of pain. It is learning how to open our hearts. It is learning how to develop loving kindness and compassion. To really understand oneself, to really understand yourself, all of who you are, is to know how to accept yourself and is the basis of transformation. To really understand the characteristics of life, to understand impermanence, to understand the cause of suffering, to understand emptiness of self, it is an insight which is powerfully transforming. They are insights which would dramatically change our lives, how we experience life, how we experience ourselves. I mean, just think, you know, we talk about impermanence all the time. We, we kind of take it for granted. We assume that we all know about impermanence. And you think of what it means to really understand that in our hearts. That if we really understand that there's nothing we can rely upon for continuity, nothing we can depend upon, nothing that is not subject to change, if we can really understand that rhythm of endings and beginnings, that constant fluidity in our lives, we would also understand how to let go. We would understand the fruitlessness of clinging and holding and resistance and all of the, the reactions that are born of that. To really understand, to deepen in that of personal insight, understanding the nature of existence, would bring about an end to defensiveness and anger, 
the thing about an end to fear and cling, it would offer us a glimpse of a profound freedom. Sometimes I think we have that glimpse. We can conceive of what it might be to live without fear, without hatred. We can conceive of what it might be to live with a fullness of loving kindness and compassion and how our lives would be. Another area of insight which this practice is really concerned with is liberating insight, understanding the nature of the unconditioned, understanding the nature of what is true, awakening to that in ourselves and in all things. There are many ways of developing insight. Many things in our lives lead to insight. I would certainly never make any claim that meditation somehow possesses the only road to insight. But meditation is one way of entering the path of insight. It is not a practice of insight, as I said. But rather through the attention and the sensitivity that we nurture and develop here, what we are actually doing is cultivating an environment inwardly which lends itself to insight, which is conducive to understanding, which facilitates the development of insight. When we sit, we meet ourselves. When we sit with clarity and with attentiveness, We meet ourselves and we meet the present moment. And our meditation is simply to be aware of the quality of that meeting, of what is reflected, what that meeting teaches us, what its message is, what we can learn from it. This is the basis of our insight. To talk a little bit about personal insight. Now, some people have a rather... um, how shall I say it, a rather superior attitude towards the development of personal insight. Uh, Some people rather tend to feel that this should be reserved for your therapy sessions or that somehow when you come into meditation that you kind of put your personal life on hold or you you forget about it for a while and, and you pursue something more lofty or more enlightened. Unfortunately, our personal life tends not to listen too well to those intentions or those commands. Rather, our personal life, who we are as a person, what moves us, what forms us, it rather tends to um, ask for and demand attention. And I feel it is very important to understand that you, you do not bypass yourself on the way to enlightenment. You know, you do not take a detour around yourself. I think both it is not realistic and it is unskillful in meditation. And I certainly feel it is not helpful to kind of set up this hierarchy of values. You know, that there are certain things that are spiritual if I'm you know, pursuing very great spiritual insights, which much be, must be much better somehow than understanding why I hate this other person in the room. There is no hierarchy of values. 
Insight is about transformation, it is about letting go, and it has no preferences. But letting go in one area is somehow better than letting go in another area. It has no preferences, and it has no hierarchy. In fact, I would go so far as to say, or to suggest, that deepening in meditation is very clearly linked to deepening in personal insight. In, I would say that in order to deepen in understanding, acceptance is an essential ingredient in that deepening. Not a passive acceptance. You know, of, you know I'm, I'm a terrible person, so I just must accept that I'm a terrible person. You know, or I, you know, I'm an angry person, so I must just learn to accept that. Not that kind of passive, resigned acceptance, but an acceptance of clarity and love, I would say, is essential in deepening a meditation. And just to look at the role that acceptance does play. The lack of acceptance will color every area of our lives. And it will color our relationship to the present moment. When there is an absence of acceptance, there is a fullness of denial. When there is an absence of acceptance, there is the presence of avoidance. When there is an absence of acceptance, then that is when we find ourselves at war, both with ourselves and with the present moment. And that war is expressed and manifested in the shoulds and the unrealistic expectations we extend towards ourselves and others about what I should be happening, what what I should be experiencing, what should be happening for me. The conflict between what is and what should be is the conflict most people experience not only in the beginning of meditation, but is the source of much of the conflict that people experience in their lives. That conflict between what is and what should be is the conflict that leads to the busyness of modification and manipulation, where we're trying to seek changes or make changes happen, either in other people or in ourselves, not on the basis of acceptance, but on the basis of how things should be. The gap that can exist, which can be so huge, between what is and what should be, is the source of so much struggle. And it is the source also of so many of these extremes and swings between elation and despair that we experience, not only in meditation, but in the rest of our lives. Meditation is a good example. You know, you have a sitting that somehow fits in with the idea of what a good sitting is or what a sitting really should look like. You know, you've got a calm body and a calm body and a, and a happy mind and a concentrated breath and hooray. You know, I've done it right. This is how it should be. I'm so excited, I'm elated, I'm happy, I'm delighted until the next sitting comes around which isn't as it should be. And then, oh, what despair, what depression. 
absolute anxiety. And this happens not just here, I might mention. In the rest of our lives, how much our swings between elation and despair are based upon our capacity to make the world fulfill our expectations and desires or our incapacity to do so. Because of those swings and those shorts, that's the only reason we have ideas of failure and success. Apart from the shoulds, the failure and success somehow don't have any meaning. They simply don't have any meaning. Nor is there any meaning to the feeling that I am a failure or I am a success. Shoulds create goals. Goals that are divorced from acceptance tend to be very elusive goals. But focusing upon those goals of making ourselves, our lives, our world, or other people conform to how they should be. Focused upon those goals, we find it extremely and increasingly difficult just to be attuned to what is, just to listen to what is, just to accept what is in this moment, and to understand that our greatest teacher is the present moment. Our greatest, our wisest teachers are never far away from us. They are in the moment that we're experiencing, the changes within that moment, the ups and downs within that moment, the stories and the process within that moment. They are our greatest teachers. But somehow we can be so busy looking towards a future, looking towards a fulfillment of goals, looking for the way things should be, that we just forget it. In the beginning of meditation, the beginning of meditation is really often just understanding this very basic struggle. Isn't that what it's about in the beginning? The, the hardships, the difficulties, often just really coming to understand that basic struggle between what is and what should be. Understanding what a lack of acceptance does and what, self, and what acceptance does, whether it is self-acceptance or acceptance of others, what difference that makes. In many ways, I think it is true to say that the beginning of acceptance is actually the beginning of meditation. Now, on a more kind of um, formal level, when we begin in meditation, very simple. We cultivate attention. We attune ourselves to this moment. We work with again and again, renewing that sense of connection and cultivating this very simple thing we call attentiveness, being present. Simple but not easy. I would not infer that it is easy. Now, in the beginning of meditation, it often does feel like a very uphill battle. You know, we, we have, you know, for lucky two breaths in a row, you know, we feel really fortunate if we've managed to kind of follow three footsteps in a row, you know, and we often kind of really feel so hopeless when, you know, we're constantly seemingly to be drifting and preoccupied. But we find, and we find that there is that struggle and it feels uphill for, for different reasons. One reason, of course, is that we are not 
simply having trouble with developing attention. It's not that basic. What we are actually doing, of course, is meeting our own resistances. Meeting our resistances to being present for a number of different reasons. Because of fear. Yeah, because it doesn't seem to offer us what we want. Because we're not confident. We don't trust that in being present and being with ourselves that there will be richness or fullness or anything else. So we meet our own resistances. At times, because when we turn our attention inwardly, we don't find what we want to find. We would love, I'm sure, all be delighted to turn our attention inwardly and have it a bit like opening a Christmas stocking, you know, that we would turn our attention inwardly and there would be joy and bliss and happiness and peace and calm and all those nice things. Instead, often when we turn our attention inwardly, we, we find ourselves discovering things that we don't want. Um, you know, I remember once speaking with a woman you know, who came from an extraordinarily difficult, intense home life, and, and she came and said, you know, she really wanted to learn to meditate because she wanted peace. She really needed some peace. So we talked a little bit about meditation and how to do it and, you know, using the breath and all those things we've been talking about here. And she went home and, and conscientiously did it and a week later came back and was so cross and angry and said, you know, I did what you suggested. I did it morning, I did it night time, I did it lunchtime, I've been following my breath. And she said, look what happened. I started being aware of all these things about why I was unhappy, why I was tense, why I was in such conflict. She said, this isn't what I wanted, I wanted peace. Sometimes it's true, we can't make those choices. And we don't necessarily have that control. You know, we can't pick and choose the nice bits, you know, like a, a meal where you put to the side of your plate the bits you don't like. We can't just pick and choose inwardly. Our process unfolds, our inner story unfolds, and we are asked to be so unconditional in our welcoming and our opening. And this is not always so easy because it often is quite threatening and, and, and we often feel that we lose our sense of control, which is very important to us. We often find things we may not want to find. And it seems sometimes we just can't help but judge ourselves for what we find. So there is that feeling at times of you know, struggling to be attentive, but I think it is really necessary to place that in a larger context. That we're not struggling to be attentive. There's much, something much bigger happening than that. That we're actually really attuning ourselves inwardly and listening and surrendering and just opening to what is. And this is extraordinarily challenging. This is no easy path. But we find that some things do begin to change, and you're probably discovering that, that somewhere there is a whisper of trust. Otherwise, people would never make it through a retreat. 
somewhere there is a whisper of trust that there's actually a reason for this. There's actually a reason for this struggle, there's actually a reason for staying. I mean, why else would you do this? You know, sit with sore knees and a sore mind and, you know, kind of thoughts of, you know, being on the beach and all those things. Somewhere there's a whisper of trust that sustains us. It may be so vague, it may even be almost unconscious. But somewhere there's a whisper of trust that there is some meaning here, something of significance, and something that it is only possible for me to do, that no one can substitute for me in doing that. And that trust sustains us, and that trust begins to make a difference. We do find that the struggles begin to lessen the difficulty begins to lessen. We do find that the things that felt overwhelming initially on a retreat perhaps no longer feel totally overwhelming. We find a greater strength in our capacity to open to things. That feelings and thoughts and images that we previously felt just to be a victim of that somehow we are beginning to accommodate them, that somehow we're beginning to be able to embrace them, that we have the room and the space to hold that within ourselves without being totally devastated by it. We find actually that these vague things called resources that have been talked about, that they're actually beginning to emerge that there is more energy, there is a greater ease and attentiveness, there's a greater confidence, there's a greater equanimity, that there's a greater generosity of heart, that these vague things of resources somehow become just a little more (coughs) tangible, somehow a little more real and alive within ourselves. And we begin to, perhaps, just for a moment, begin to have some glimpses of what calmness actually is, of what receptivity actually is, of what openness actually is, of what compassion is. There may be only momentary glimpses, and yet they're incredibly inspiring. You know, one moment of real profound peace in a retreat, you know, somehow wipes out from the memory days of suffering. You know, you suddenly, aha, that is why I do it. That is why I'm here. We begin to have those glimpses. We begin to, it doesn't mean that suddenly, you know, all that is behind us and now we are entering into some kind of new enlightened era in our meditation. It, it doesn't mean that. We probably will still be experiencing in our meditation valleys and peaks. Valleys when things feel really difficult and at times peaks when we say, aha, this is what it's about. But I think there is a change in attitude. You know, I think when we are, we are more immature in meditation, all that we're interested in is the peaks. I, I think this is so. You know, when we're more immature in meditation, you know, we are really impatient 
for the goodies to come. And when we have kind of valleys, we think, oh, this is a waste of time. I've regressed here, or I've lost it, or I've failed somehow. I do feel that as clarity matures, we have a different relationship to those valleys. That those valleys in meditation are actually often extraordinarily rich in insight and in learning. That the valleys teach us about ourselves and about our possibilities. That the valleys teach us about the effects of holding very experientially, very immediately. We experience the effects of clinging, even if it's to the last sitting. When the next sitting doesn't conform to it, we experience moment to moment level the effects and the limitations of clinging. We begin to experience really what causes sorrow, what causes pain, what causes limitation. On a moment-to-moment level, we begin to also perhaps experience that it is not necessary. We experience the pain that is created through wanting, through judgment, through images. And yet the very trust that we begin to develop in meditation allows us to stay with that, to open to it, to see into it. And we begin to sense that perhaps this sorrow is not necessary. We begin to sense that awareness and insight, it doesn't necessarily produce terrific answers. It doesn't erase the past. It doesn't undo our personal histories. But what awareness does is it neutralizes the power of the past, the power of conditioning, the power of reactiveness in the moment that it arises. And we discover that we do not need to be bound within the confines of that which causes pain and sorrow. We also appreciate that awareness is liberating and that it, it empowers us actually to to work is not the right word, but to relate skillfully to that which is undermining, to that which is destructive or negative. That awareness empowers us to explore, to investigate, to, to let go. Awareness empowers us to, to bring into the forefront of our consciousness the resources of compassion, of forgiveness, of generosity that makes a difference. Now, as you deepen in the meditation, you begin to have a a clearer sense of process as it arises, that whole movement inwardly towards things, away from things, the movement of clinging, the movement of resistance, the movement of constructing things. You begin to have a a more moment-to-moment clarity around that process. And often there's many insights You may say, aha, that is why I react in such and such a way. Uh, This is where fear comes from, why there is anger. And sometimes I get very high about those insights. I've really seen something, you know, my life is going to change, everything's going to be different. And I think sometimes we we might anticipate that those insights are going to have a kind of magical effect. 
sometimes it's true, I would say. You can have an insight in meditation, it has an immediate effect, and that pattern or that tendency may never arise again. But that is rare. That is quite rare, I would just caution. But for many people, for most of us, on the level of personal insight, seeing is the first step. There is not a thing as kind of enlightened retirement. You know, that I've seen, and that's enough seeing, and I don't have to see anymore. There is no such thing. If we treasure insight, if we treasure peace, if we treasure compassion, we have to also treasure the path to their nurturing, to their development, and to their application. Many people leave retreats and they feel they lose their insight. You know, on the motorway, or in the train, or you know, in the first contact they have with an unpleasant situation, they say, I lost it. I lost my, I saw that so clearly. You know, why have I lost it now? Or over time they feel that their insights have somehow disappeared. Well, insights don't disappear and we don't lose them. But I feel, if we feel there's a kind of falling into habitual tendencies, habitual patterns, habitual conditioning, the question we need to ask ourselves is not where did I leave my insight. The question we need to ask ourselves is much more how much am I willing to live in accord with my insight? How much am I willing to live in the spirit of what I understand to be true and what I understand to be valuable? How much am I actually willing to bring that into my life, into every area of my life? The characteristic of insight is that it is transforming only if it is lived. If it is not lived, it is not transforming. It's a nice thought, or it's a nice memory, or it's a nice past experience. But insight is a living understanding. It's a living wisdom. And it is only living if we live in the spirit of it. If it is really part of our being. I think it's very important to really remember that the basis of Buddhist teaching is really the Four Noble Truths. That there is suffering and sorrow. That there is a cause of suffering and sorrow, that there is an end to suffering and sorrow, and that there is a path to its end. And that in many ways, that's a package deal. You know, you can't just have the end of suffering and not the path. You know, one really must be willing to have that kind of integration, which really means the Dharma is a way of living, a way of being in the world. As we sustain and deepen the practice, we find this easier because there is a delight in living in the spirit of insight. It's no fun to not live in the spirit of understanding. You know, after a while, even though clinging off is temporary pleasure or 
you know, or, or hatred offers a temporary sense of righteousness, or judgment offers a temporary sense of superiority, or, you know, resistance offers a temporary sense of control. After a while, you know, this, this is not a fun way to live. And we become tired of it. We become disillusioned with it. And we come more to delight in the spirit of letting go, in the spirit of generosity, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of forgiveness, the spirit of openness. It comes to be a delight, not a task, not a religious ritual. It comes to be a delight. And this is so important. And I do think as that deepens, we do begin to experience really the, many of the benefits of meditation. As your meditation is sustained, as your attention deepens, you will begin to experience a greater access of calm, a greater ease in not dwelling upon things, an easier end to the construction of things. And then there comes, you know, a much wider sense of insight. One really begins to have a sense of the universality of life. That it's not just my stuff I'm dealing with here, but what causes you sorrow causes me sorrow. That what the, the changes, the, the, the tides in your life, the rhythms in your life, are the rhythms in my life. That self and other has nothing to do with this. That there is a harmony in living in accord with the way things are, in accord with the nature of change. We begin really to see the causes of suffering that is not necessary, that it can be stepped out of through one's own wisdom, one's own understanding. And one begins to really understand really the falseness of these ideas of self and separateness, of I and other, of division and 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 separation, but they are all so much a kind of illusion, a construction, that they lead only to prejudice and to sorrow, that they are not true. And begins then, I think in that understanding, you know, those barriers begin to drop away. Then there's a real opening of the heart. You know that compassion is not compassion for somebody else. Compassion is just a response of the heart. Then wisdom is not something we try to live up to. But wisdom just has kind of naturalness about it. It's not something we must strive for. That opening of the heart that comes with ending separations, ending divisions, leads to such a depth of receptivity, a depth of love, a depth of giving that is truly enriching. And I feel also in that deepening, there really does come a quality of grace, a quality of being, a deep and profound sense of attunement in this moment where really the ideas of there being somewhere to go or somewhere to reach really do fall away. There's a greater sense of receptivity of just being touched by this moment. And in that receptivity, 
there lies the possibility of also being touched by truly liberating insight, really awakening to the truth of ourselves, the truth of our life, to that which is unconditioned. That awakening is central to this path. Being awake is what we cultivate in the beginning of this path. Being awake is the end of this path. Being awake is the heart of this path. And is actually all we ever need to remember about meditation. Just to be awake. From that, everything else flows. Everything else is born. From that simple yearning for and commitment to wakefulness. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion.